Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Well, recording this podcast on Monday afternoon, the stock market closed uh, about an hour ago, and it was up over a hundred points today. I mean, it opened, it gapped up over a hundred points, sold off uh, just slightly negative in their day, and then regained the plus 100 uh, by the close. But the more dramatic days happened on Thursday and Friday. You know, I recorded my Thursday podcast, I think, long before the markets had closed. And despite the initial euphoric increase in the stock market that greeted the Fed's highly anticipated quarter point rate hike on Wednesday. In fact, we got a big rally in the market on Tuesday prior to that because everybody was celebrating in advance uh, the rate hike and what that supposedly signified about how great the U.S. economy was because the Fed had enough confidence in it to raise rates from zero to 025 But then the market tanked on Thursday and Friday. We were down over 600 points on Thursday and Friday. So we were down on the week. The most significant part about the sell-offs is that in both cases, the markets closed on the absolute low of the day, with much of the selling not only coming in the final hour, but the final half hour, final 15 minutes. And, you know, I think the Fed is, uh, you know, getting dangerously close to losing Uh, what remains of its credibility. You know, it's the credibility bubble that might be the first one to deflate. And it's amazing to me, after two busted bubbles in the last 15 years, that the Fed still has any credibility left. But I guess it's going to be the third time's the charm, or I guess whatever is the opposite of of charm uh, for the Fed when it comes to losing their credibility. See, I've been saying this all along. The Fed has been talking about how it believed the U.S. economy would be strong enough for a rate hike later in the year, right? They were saying that all year long. And when December came around, and now this was their last meeting, their last opportunity to raise rates, if they didn't do it, it would have been an admission that they were wrong, right? That the economy wasn't strong enough to raise rates by the end of the year. 
because if they didn't raise rates and the year ended and we were still at zero, then that would prove that their their assessment was was inaccurate. And I guess the Fed was afraid to have to admit that they were wrong. So rather than admit that they were wrong, they raised rates anyway, even though the economic data clearly showed that they shouldn't have done it based on their own criteria. And so I said, you know, the Fed had a choice. It was they could either look foolish now by not raising rates or look foolish later by by raising them. And I think that they're going to look foolish a lot sooner than they thought by looking foolish later because the markets are already unraveling and more and more people are now questioning whether or not they made a policy mistake because it's obvious. I mean, look at the data that has just come out even since the Fed hiked rates. Look what happened on Friday. We got the PMI flash services index. Uh, that came out at 53.7. Last month, it was 56.5. So, you know, it went way down from the previous month. And this is the service sector. Also, the Kansas City Fed manufacturing last month was plus one. And in December, it was minus eight. That's a, uh, a weak number. And then even today, we got Chicago Fed national activity. This is coming from the Fed itself. It was supposed to be plus one five for November. Instead, it came out at minus 0.3. So it came out twice as negative as they were expecting positive, And they revised down the prior month. They took October from minus 0.04 to minus 0.17. So this is typical. Not only do we get worse data that is expected, but they go back and they make the data from the prior month even worse than they originally told us. So with all the economic data, horrible, Uh, With retail sales horrible, with corporate earnings horrible, it's obvious that the U.S. economy is heading to recession. Well, then why did the Fed raise rates? Well, it must mean that what was obvious to everybody else or should have been obvious wasn't obvious to the Fed, that the Fed was oblivious to this. So as the economy slows and the Fed is forced to admit that it's wrong and is forced to lower interest rates back down to zero and launch QE4, there goes its credibility. They were obviously wrong and they were so wrong that they couldn't even admit it. And, you know, all of these problems that we have in the U.S. economy, and they're a long time in the making. I mean, this collapse that's coming is the culmination of really decades of bad uh, macroeconomic policy, monetary policy, fiscal policy. But where we really went off the rails, you know, to a whole new level of insanity was in the Greenspan era. I mean, Greenspan had, you know, the most reckless of monetary policies up until his tenure. And his monetary policy really sent us off on this trajectory, I mean, accelerated the problems that had been building for decades. And then when Ben Bernanke took over and had to deal with the aftermath, I mean, he went to, he took monetary policy to a whole new level. I mean, it really became ridiculous under Bernanke because it wasn't just 1% rates and, you know, a Greenspan put. I mean, we had 0% rates for seven years and three rounds of quantitative easing. And when Janet Yellen took over the helm, I mean, she continued those ridiculous policies initially, but then she decided to try and dial it back, right? Dial it back from, you know, ridiculous to just, you know, uh, you know, crazy or whatever, whatever Greenspan had. In fact, we haven't even got back to levels that are that irrational yet. I mean, interest rates aren't back at one. They're just not zero. 
and she stopped doing the quantitative easing, although she's still rolling over. And Janet Yellen admitted in their you know press conference or in their statement last week when they raised rates that they're still going to be rolling over all of the bonds that mature and reinvesting all of the interest on those bonds. So in other words, the Fed's balance sheet is still set at a minimum to stay the same and but actually grow because when they reinvest the interest, the balance sheet is growing. So the Fed is not even shrinking its balance sheet yet. It's still expanding it. It's just not expanding it as fast as they were when they were still officially doing QE. So she's trying to dial back uh, that level of monetary policy away from the ridiculous policy that we had uh, under Bernanke, but it's going to blow up in her face. The economy, the bubble economy can't handle it, right? The drug addicts need their full dose to heroin. They can't take the tapered dose and they certainly can't take it with a 25 basis point rate hike. You know, we were already heading into monetary withdrawal just with the absence of the QE. This slight rate hike and the prospect of four more. Remember, the Federal Reserve, according to Janet Yellen, is telegraphing that we're going to get four more quarter point rate hikes. Right, Every season of 2016, the Fed is going to raise rates another 25 basis points. Of course, this is all part of the pretense. Right, This is the Fed just trying to pretend uh, that they have confidence in the economy so they can pretend that they're actually going to be raising rates four more times last, next year when they really didn't even want to raise rates once this year. But they had backed themselves into that credibility corner. But now I think they're going to lose even more credibility for having raised rates than they would have lost if they just left them at zero. Because now, I mean, Janet Yellen is going to have to take this thing to a whole new level. She's going to have to go to ludicrous speed when it comes to quantitative easing. If you saw the movie Spaceballs, you remember when they tried to go to ludicrous speed, it didn't work out too well, right, uh, for uh, the Rick Moranis character, Dark Helmet. Uh, when they when they when they went to ludicrous speed and when they take quantitative easing up to ludicrous speed, that's going to be it. Right. Not only for the cred- Fed's credibility, but it's not going to work in blowing any bubbles. Uh, it, it, it's just going to blow up in their faces and we're going to blow up the dollar. We're going to blow up the bond market. I mean, maybe initially uh, there might be some kind of boost. I don't know. I mean, the Fed is going to have to try to pretend that everything worked. They just misjudged like the amount of fuel that the rocket ship needed to achieve escape velocity. They're saying, you know what? We just didn't have quite enough quantitative easing. Paul Krugman was right. You know, we needed to do it bigger. So we just need to do, you know, ludicrous. We need to do more quantitative easing on a bigger scale. We need bigger asset purchases. We need negative interest rates. Zero wasn't quite low enough. We need to go negative. And, and then we're going to get escape velocity. And then we'll be able to dial it back. We just need to take the balance sheet from $4.5 trillion to $10 trillion, And then we'll be able to shrink it. Now, I don't think the market is going to buy it one more time. That's why I'm saying the third time is going to be the opposite of the charm when it comes uh, to the Fed. But it will be the charm, I think, uh, for uh, gold and other investment strategies. Uh, that I have been recommending, which brings me to what I wanted to discuss on this podcast. And that is um, CNBC really taking me to task on their website. The article came out on Sunday evening, and it was the title, I guess, is The Peter Meter, Assessing Shifts Predictions. 
And they really want to take me to task for how awful my predictions have been. And of course, they don't want to focus or they don't want to look at any of the predictions that I've made on CNBC that have actually panned out already, because there are plenty of those, right? But they want to focus in on the ones that haven't worked out in order to discredit me. And so they focused on a prediction that I made in an interview I did in 2012. Now, I've been going on CNBC since 2005, right? And so there's a lot of stuff that I've said, uh, particularly in the earlier interviews, that has come true in a spectacular way. And they don't, they, they don't give me any credit for that. In fact, CNBC never wrote an article about me, about my predictions that came true, right? They never wanted to pat me on the back and say, hey, here's, you know, Peter Schiff's made some good calls. No, they only wanted to write, an article about my bad calls. And by the way, there are a lot of other people that go on CNBC that made a lot worse calls than me. They never write articles about them, right? For some reason, they want to single me out, even though I'm barely on. I've only been on actual CNBC twice in the last two years. I mean, they barely have me on, yet they decide to write an article about how bad my forecasts are. But I have been on this show Futures Now a few times, which is not even on CNBC. It's on their website. And, and so they have had me on my, their website a few times because they know it generates traffic, right? Because there are people who, who look for me on the Internet. And so uh, they probably get a lot more uh, traffic on their website when they have Peter Schiff than when they have just about anybody else. So every once in a while, they do have me on. And so they brought up this interview I did in 2012 when gold was at 1700 And I said that I thought it was going to 5000 and. They pressed me and they asked me, well, when? How soon do you think it's going to happen? Or no, initially I said, I think in a few years. I said, I think gold's going to go to 5,000 in a few years. And then they pressed me on, you know, well, you know, how soon do you think it's going to happen? And I really said, I don't know. I said, I think we're going to make a big move, though, in the next couple of years. So I never really put a, you know, a time horizon on my 5,000 call. Uh, but I said a few years, and I don't know. I mean, I, obviously a few is more than two because two would be a couple. But, I mean, a few could be three, but I don't know. I mean, you you know, a few could be four, could be five. I mean, it just means a small number. It's not a lot. I didn't know how many years. That's why I just, you know, said a few. I mean, I mentioned to them in there, you know, the Marines are looking for a few good men. How many are they looking for? I mean, they're, they're, they're looking for quite a few, actually. So it's a very nondescriptive term, but it's meant to apply – a, a, a few, a, a small number of years as opposed to a large number of years. And so it's still possible that my 5,000 prediction could come true, could come true the next couple of years. Now, I granted uh, that given that it's fallen down to below 1,100, that it's obviously going to take a lot longer to hit 5,000 than I believed in 2012 when I recorded that interview. And what's also obvious is that when I recorded that interview, I did not foresee the severity of the pullback in the price of gold. Remember, I had been bullish on gold uh, for over a decade when we gave that interview. In fact, I sent CNBC a copy of the interview I did with Mark Haynes in 2005 when gold was still below 500, in which everybody was making fun of me for recommending gold. And I was telling people they should buy gold and, you know, it's going higher. And so, you know, by the time I did this interview, it was more than triple the price of that interview. So, you know, they don't want to give me credit for that call. And, of course, I was recommending it even when it was below uh, five, 400. But I was recommending it below 300. I just wasn't on CNBC uh, during those times. They didn't know who I was, but I was certainly on CNBC uh, when gold was in the 400s. And you can see articles that I wrote. I, I didn't start writing articles and publishing them uh, until I think maybe 2004-ish. 
But there are plenty of articles I wrote about gold, about recommending gold when it was 350. So there's plenty of evidence that shows that I was recommending it and predicting higher prices uh, when gold was very, very low. And of course, there were not that many people that were doing that. Most people on CNBC, when I would talk about gold, would laugh at me and they were all bearish. I mean, there were people, by the time gold got to 1700, there were people on CNBC who had been bearish the entire way up to 1700, right? So, so they were more wrong than I was. But look, I didn't foresee the big correction. I mean, a near 40% correction uh, in the price of gold. I didn't think that was going to happen because I thought the world would react differently, that people would figure out the ultimate problem that quantitative easing was going to cause. Instead, they got fooled by the bubble. You know, just like people got fooled by bubbles in the past, people believe we have a real recovery. They think the Fed solved their problems. They don't understand that they made the problems worse. So I didn't foresee uh, the big run in the dollar based on the anticipation of all these rate hikes that aren't even going to happen, based on the false belief that a legitimate recovery had, you know, had evolved from this monetary policy, and I know it's a bubble. And so, yes, sure, I got that wrong, right? Nobody is perfect. I didn't see the big correction in the price of gold. But to look at this article, according to the article, my calling for 5,000 gold when it was at 1,700 was the worst prediction or one of the worst predictions ever made, ever made in the history of CNBC. I mean, this way, here's the exact quote. Made when trading at 1700, this prediction, this prediction may count among the least prescient ever made on CNBC. Give me a break. One of the worst predictions ever made on CNBC. Gold isn't even down 40%. Now, think about this. Twice in the last uh, 15 years, the U.S. stock market lost more than half its value. That means it was down more than gold. Which means that anybody who was on CNBC, which is everybody, who was on CNBC in 1999 and recommended the stock market, which was every guest that got on there, made a worse prediction than me. It also means that every guest who was on the stock market, who was on CNBC in 2007 and 2008 and recommended the stock market, made a worse prediction than me. What about all the dot-com stocks that went bankrupt, that went to zero? You lost everything, right? If you bought gold at 1700 you didn't lose everything. I mean, you're still in the game, and yeah, maybe you're down close to 40%, but you still have your gold. But if you bought one of those dot-com stocks that went to zero, you don't have anything. You got wiped out. What about all the people that bought financials, you know, before the 2008 financial crisis that went to zero? There were plenty of stocks that went down. In fact, even the stocks that didn't go to zero, there are plenty of stocks. Look at General Electric, which, which used to own, which used to own CNBC. That stock was down 90% during the 2008 financial crisis. How many stocks did go down 90%? Many of them came back. GE has come back, believe it or not, from that 90% decline. But it went down 90%. So anybody that recommended GE on CNBC, certainly that was a worse recommendation than me recommending gold at 1700 I mean, this isn't even close to one of the worst predictions. I mean, my bet is that if you took all the predict predictions that were ever made, all the forecasts on CNBC, my forecast of, of gold going up when it was at 1700 was probably better than most. Right? It probably wasn't even in the bottom half 
of wrong predictions because there are so many predictions. Going down by 40% is probably one of the better predictions made because there are so many predictions made on that network uh, where people have recommended individual stocks, individual stocks that have gone down a lot more than, than 40%. And of course, the entire market. But then again, what about all the predictions that were made uh, just about the new era in general, about the dot-com economy? In the late 1990s, what about those? Or what about all the predictions or all the denials of the problems in the economy in 2007 before it imploded, including the comments made by Ben Bernanke? Ben Bernanke said some things on CNBC about there not being a housing bubble, about the U.S. economy being being in great shape. Those predictions were way worse than my call that to buy gold at 1700. Ben Bernanke said a lot worse things on CNBC. His predictions were a lot less prescient. What about all the predictions by people, including Ben Bernanke, that the subprime problems were contained? How how unprescient was that? I mean, it's a major, major bad prediction. I mean, I was on CNBC saying it wasn't contained at all, that it was that that the entire mortgage market was going to be in trouble. I was right. I mean, in fact. I probably made some of the most prescient calls ever made by anybody on CNBC, ever. Now, have I made some calls that were wrong? Yes. But on balance, I've probably made the most accurate calls of any of the guests on CNBC. Yet, is CNBC taking anybody else to task? Are they writing articles critical of anybody else who comes on CNBC and recommends something that goes down? No. This is the first time I've seen them ever ever write an article about one of their guests and criticize their predictions, right, is me. Now, of course, they've never written an article uh, extolling my prediction, say, hey, Peter Schiff got this one right, Peter Schiff got that one right, right? The only time they want to write an article is if it can be critical of what I'm saying. And it shows you their incredible bias in writing the story, A, in writing it in the first place, and then the way they describe it as being like the worst prediction ever made on CNBC when there are so many other predictions that are so much worse and nobody ever writes about them. In fact, they keep inviting those guests on over and over again, and it's a clean slate every time. It doesn't matter how many things they say that are wrong. No one cares. They ask them their opinion. But me, all they can ever do is try to point out what I'm wrong about. Now, of course, also, it wasn't just my goal forecast that they claimed I was wrong about on this interview. Also in the interview, I said that quantitative easing wasn't going to work in reviving the economy or creating jobs, right? I said, you know, it's just going to, you know, cause asset prices to go up. And they claim that I was wrong about that, too, because they're saying that the economy uh, did revive and uh, it did create jobs. Well, that's not true. The economy hasn't been revived. It's lousy. I mean, I mean, there are a lot of other people that will agree. In fact, they're saying that we have the worst recovery ever. Right. Most of their guests were looking for a strong recovery, including all the Fed officials. I was right to say that the that QE wouldn't work because it hasn't worked. Why do you think they did it three times? Why do you think they're going to do it a fourth time? Now, they're saying, well, Schiff said it wasn't going to create jobs. And it did. It didn't create jobs. Yes, the unemployment rate has come down, but not because QE worked, not because QE created jobs. It's because millions of people left the labor force. That's why the unemployment rate came down, or because millions more have accepted part-time jobs. It's not quantitative easing that created those part-time jobs. 
it was probably Obamacare causing employers to fire their full-time workers and replace them with more part-time workers. And yes, the quantitative easing that prevented legitimate jobs from being created. Yes, people probably don't have good jobs because of QE. So instead, they have lousy, low-paying jobs. But there are more people in those lousy, low-paying jobs. In fact, a lot of people have lousy, low-paying part-time jobs because they can't even find a lousy, low-paying full-time job. So to say that the low unemployment rate or, you know, the non-farm payrolls that consist mainly of, you know, part-time jobs or jobs that were just manufactured out of thin air in the first birth death model, you know, to say that this proves that my criticism that QE wouldn't work was wrong. No, my criticism was right. And in fact, we're going to see just how right it, is, it was when the Fed has to do QE4. And of course, you know, CNBC also wants to criticize me because I said that the Fed wouldn't raise rates, and they did. Well, look, what about all the people that expected them to raise rates in, in March or June or September? They were all wrong, right? I was right. They waited till the last possible minute. And I never said, even from the beginning, that it was impossible that the Fed would raise rates. I said that they could, that they might make that mistake, but that I didn't think that they would because I thought it would be too foolish for them to have to raise rates and then lower it back down. But I knew that it was possible that they could be that dumb. And I guess they were that dumb because they were dumb enough to back themselves into a corner and then dumb enough to actually raise rates. And now they're in this predicament. And I acknowledged from the beginning that this was possible. In fact, by the time uh, we were weeks away from the rate hike, you know, you can hear from my uh, podcast, I pretty much had conceded that they were probably going to raise rates. But months earlier, it still looked like they were going to continue to bluff. But then, you know, they changed their narrative. And I guess they thought that, you know, it was too risky not to raise rates after having, you know, talked about it for so long. They they were afraid that they, they would, uh, you know, knock the confidence out of the economy. In fact, maybe this false confidence was the last thing they thought the economy got going for. You know, they were so worried about the economy, they had to throw it a lifeline in the form of a symbolic rate hike. But, you know, again, this lifeline isn't, isn't a lifesaver. It's going to act as an anchor because the economy is so weak, this is going to backfire, and the data is so bad. Again, the Fed looks more foolish by raising rates than had they not raised them at all because, again, they always said that it depends on the data. So they had a way out. They could have said the data wasn't as good as they thought, and they could have justified not raising rates, in which case my prediction would have been correct. But rather than allow that prediction to be correct, and I know they weren't thinking about Peter Schiff when they decided to raise rates. I mean, they, they didn't do that to discredit me. But uh, the idea was, well, you know, we're going to have to raise rates because if we don't do it, it's going to prove that this economy is weak. And we don't want to let that cat out of the bag. We want to continue the charade. We want to continue the pretense that this economy is strong. And the only way the Fed could do that was to raise interest rates by a quarter point and hope and pray that everything didn't fall apart. And that maybe that gesture would invigorate uh, the markets with some kind of confidence, right? Hey, the Fed wouldn't be raising rates unless they were confident that the economy could take it. Things must really be good. Right. Because the Fed is raising rates. Right. That is the attitude that they were hoping. But often, you know, be careful of the, the things that you're wishing for. But I think that the Fed is going to get the opposite of what they expected, which is often the case with government. It's not going to instill confidence. It's going to destroy what little confidence 
uh, there is left. There's so much factually incorrect information and underreporting by legacy media today. Shouldn't there be truth in media? Well, there is. Truth in Media. Recently, a novel thought is now a reality with TruthinMedia.com. Led by award-winning journalist Ben Swan, TruthinMedia.com is the source for uninfluenced, reliable, fearless news where journalists pursue real questions, not conspiracies. Make TruthinMedia.com your default browser's homepage today and get breaking news and commentary that speaks the truth to power. It's also where you can tune into The Peter Schiff Show every week. Visit TruthinMedia.com today. That's truthinmedia.com. Access the Truth in Media RS feed by visiting truthinmedia.com forward slash feed. Attention listeners, I have an urgent message for you. We're in the middle of a war. The global conflict is destroying the lives of millions without a single bomb being dropped. It's called the International Currency War, and your bank account has been drafted to fight. The victims in this conflict are our currencies, the dollar, the euro, the yen, the pound. They are all heading to zero as irresponsible central banks compete to see who can print the most the fastest. But there's one form of money politicians and central banks can't destroy, gold. Today, it's more important than ever to understand the value of gold in your portfolio and to keep a close eye on major market developments. Subscribe to my monthly video cast and you'll be the first to hear my latest analysis on gold investing and the currency wars. Visit goldvideocast.com right now to subscribe for free. I call the dot-com bust, then the housing bust, and I advise clients to diversify into foreign equities and hard assets while the rest of Wall Street laughed at me. Now I want to keep you up to date on the next crisis that is brewing. My gold video cast also includes personal interviews I've conducted with other contrarian investors like Jim Rickards and Axel Merck. Gold has gone up 256% since 2003, but it has a lot further to go. Don't miss the rally. You can prosper during this time of currency wars, but only if you stay educated. Get a free subscription to my gold video cast at goldvideocast.com. That's goldvideocast.com.